Chapter Three of *The Hound from the North* by Ridgewell Cullum. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Lisa Reichert. Chapter Three. Mister Zachary Smith smokes. It was the third morning of the traveller's sojourn in Mister Smith's dugout. Two long idle days had been spent in the fetid atmosphere of the trapper's half-buried house. During their enforced stay, neither Gray nor his subordinates had learnt much of their reticent host. It is doubtful if they had troubled themselves much about him. He had greeted them with a sort of indifferent hospitality, and they were satisfied. It was not in the nature of their work to question the characters of those whom they encountered upon their journey. To all that he had, Mr. Zachary Smith had made them welcome. They could expect no more, and they needed no more. Now the day had arrived for their departure, for the storm had subsided and the sun was shining with all its wintry splendour. The three men leisurely devoured an early morning breakfast. Mr. Smith was quite cheerful. He seemed to be labouring under some strange excitement. He looked better, too, since the advent of his guests. Perhaps it was the result of the ample supplies of canned provisions which the two men had lavished unsparingly upon him. His face was less cadaverous. The deep, searing furrows were less pronounced. Altogether there was a marked improvement in this solitary dweller in the wild. Now he was discussing the prospects of the weather, whilst he partook liberally of the food set before him. "'These things aren't like most storms,' he said. "'They blow themselves out and have done with it. They don't come back on you with a change of wind. That isn't the way of the blizzard. We've got a clear spell of a fortnight and more before us, with luck. Now which way may you be taking, gentlemen? Are you going to head through the mountains for the main trail?' or are you going to double back on your tracks we are going back said gray with unpleasant emphasis any allusion to his mistake of the road annoyed him chillingwood turned his head away and hid a smile i think you will do well replied the trapper largely i know these hills and i should be inclined to hark back to where you missed the trail i hope to cover twenty miles myself to-day your traps will be buried i should say suggested rob i'm used to that replied the tall man quietly guess i shan't have much difficulty with them he permitted himself the suspicion of a smile gray drew out his pipe and leisurely loaded it rob followed suit mr zachary smith pushed his tin pannikin away from before him and leaned back going to smoke he asked guess i'll join you no not your plug thanks i'm feeling pretty good my weed'll do me. You don't fancy to try it? Tea and B's good enough for me, said Gray with a smile. No, I won't experiment. Smith held his pouch towards Chillingwood. Can I? Rob shook his head with a doubtful smile. Guess not, thanks. What's good enough for my chief is good enough for me. The trapper slowly unfolded an antelope-hide pouch of native workmanship. He emptied out a little pile of greenish-brown flakes into the palm of his hand. It was curious, dusty-looking stuff, suggestive of discoloured bran. This he poured into the bowl of a well-worn briar, the mouthpiece of which he carefully and with accuracy adjusted into the corner of his mouth. "'If you ever chance to have the experience I have had in these mountains, gentlemen,' he then went on slowly, as gathering into the palm of his hand a red-hot cinder from the stove, he tossed it to and fro until it lodged on the bowl of his pipe. 
i think you'll find the use of the weed which grows on this hillside with a jerk of his head upwards to indicate the bush which flourished in that direction has its advantages maybe said grey contemptuously i doubt it said rob with a pleasant smile the lean man knocked the cinder from his pipe and emitted a cloud of pungent smoke from between his lips the others had lit up but the odour of the trapper's weed quickly dominated the atmosphere he talked rapidly now you folks who travel the main trails don't see much of what is going on in the mountains the real life of the mountains he said you have no conception of the real dangers which these hills contain yes sir they're hidden from the public eye and only get to be known outside by reason of the chance experience of the traveller who happens to lose his way but is lucky enough to escape the pitfalls with which he finds himself surrounded i could tell you some queer yarns of these hills travellers tales suggested grey with a yawn and a disparaging smile i have heard some yes said rob there are queer tales afloat of adventures encountered by travellers journeying from the valley to the coast but they're chiefly confined to wayside robbery and are of a very sordid everyday kind no doubt your experiences are less matter-of-fact and more romantic by jove i feel jolly comfy not much like turning out that's how it takes me said smith quietly but with a quick glance at the speaker but idleness won't boil my pot it's a remarkable thing that i've felt wonderfully energetic these last few days and now that i have to turn out i should prefer to stop where i am i suppose it's human nature he gazed upon his audience with a broad smile at that moment the loud yelping of the dogs penetrated the thick sides of the dugout. Rainy Moon was preparing for the start. Doubtless the brilliant change in the weather had inspired the savage burden-bearers of the north. "'That's curious-smelling stuff you're smoking,' said Grey, rousing himself with an effort after a moment's dead silence. "'What do you call it?' "'Can't say. A weed,' said Zachary Smith, glancing down his nose towards the bowl of his pipe not bad is it smells of almonds tastes like nutty sherry grey stifled a yawn i feel sleepy damned sleepy wonder if rainy moon has got the sleigh loaded smith emitted another dense cloud of smoke from between his pursed lips he seemed wrapped in the luxurious enjoyment of his smoke rob chillingwood's eyelids were drooping and his pipe had gone out quite suddenly the trapper's eyes were turned on the face of grey and the smoke from his pipe was chiefly directed towards him there's time enough yet he said quietly half an hour more or less won't make much difference to you on the road you were talking of travellers tales and i reckon you were thinking of fairy yarns that some folks think it smart to spin well maybe those same stories have some foundation in fact and ain't all works of imagination anyhow my experience has taught me never to disbelieve until i've some good sound grounds for doing so he paused and gazed with a far-off look at the opposite wall then a shadowy smile stole over his face and he went on his companions heads had drooped slowly forward and their eyes were heavy with sleep grey was fighting against the drowsiness by jerking his head sharply upwards but his eyes would close in spite of his efforts. 
"'Well, I never thought that I'd get caught napping,' continued Smith with a chuckle. "'I thought I knew these regions well enough, but I didn't. "'I lost my way, too, and came near to losing my life.' He broke off abruptly as Rob Chillingwood slowly rolled over on his side and began to snore loudly. Then Smith turned back to Leslie Gray, and leaning forward so that his face was close to that of the officer, blew clouds of the pungent smoke right across the half-stupefied man's mouth and nostrils. I lost other things, he then went on meditatively, but not my life. I lost that which was more precious to me. I lost gold, gold. I lost the result of many weary months of toil. I had hoarded it up that I might go down to the east and buy a nice little ranch and settle down into a comfortable, respectable man of property. I didn't even wait until the spring opened so that I could take the river route. No, that wasn't my way, because I knew it would cost a lot of money, and I wasn't overburdened with wealth. I had just enough. He puffed vigorously at his pipe. Gray's head was now hanging forward and his chin rested on his chest. There came the sound of Rainy Moon's voice, adjuring the dogs outside the door of the dugout. The trapper's eyes flashed evilly in the direction of the unconscious Indian. "'To do what I wanted,' he resumed. "'No more, no less. And I set out on foot.' He was anxiously watching for Gray's collapse. "'Yes, I was going to tramp to the seacoast through these mountains. I hit the wrong trail,' decoyed by a false track carefully made by those who waited for me in these hills gray was swaying heavily and his breathing was stertorous i met my fate and was robbed of my gold i was drugged as you poor fools are being drugged now when it was too late i discovered how it was done and i determined to do the same thing by the first victim that fell into my clutches i tried the weed and soon got used to its fumes. Then I waited, waited. I had set my decoy on the crossroads, and you, you came. As the trapper ceased speaking, Gray slowly rolled over, insensible. In a moment the watching man was upon his feet. His whole face was transfigured. Alertness was in every movement, in every flash of his great eyes. He moved quickly across the floor of the hut and took two shallow pannikins from the sack which lay upon the floor, dropped some of the flaky weed into the bottom of each one, and then from the stove he scraped some coals of fire into them. The fire set the dry weed smouldering, and the thick smoke rose heavily from the two tins. These he placed upon the ground in such a position that his hard-breathing victims should thoroughly inhale the fumes. Thus he would make doubly sure of them. This done, he stood erect and gazed for some seconds at the result of his handiwork. He was satisfied, but there was no look of pleasure on his face. He did not look like a man of naturally criminal instincts. There was nothing savage about his expression, or even callous. His look merely seemed to say that he had set himself this task, and so far what he had done was satisfactory, in view of his object. He turned from the heavy slumbering men, and his eyes fell upon the two small gold chests. Instantly his whole expression changed. Here was the keynote to the man's disposition. Gold. It was the gold he coveted. At all costs that gold was to be his. His eyes shone with greed. 
He moved towards the boxes as though he were about to handle them, but he paused abruptly before he reached them. The barking of the dogs and the strident tones of the Indian's voice outside arrested him. He suddenly remembered that he had not yet completed his work. Now he moved with unnecessarily stealthy steps over to the darkest corner of the hut, to where a pile of rough skins stood. The steady nerve which had hitherto served him seemed in a measure to have weakened. It was a phase which a man of his disposition must inevitably pass through in the perpetration of a first crime. He was assailed by a sensation of watching eyes following his every movement, with a feeling that another presence than those two slumbering forms moved with him in the dim light of the dugout. He was haunted by his other self, the moral self. From beneath the pile of furs he drew a heavy revolver which he carefully examined. The chambers were loaded. Again came the sound of the dogs outside, and he even fancied he heard the shuffling of Rainy Moon's moccasins over the beaten snow just outside the door. He turned his face in the direction. The expression of his great hungry eyes was malevolent. Whatever moral fear might have been his, there could be no doubt that he would carry his purpose out. He gripped his pistol firmly and moved towards the door. As his hand rested on the latch he paused. Just for one instant he hesitated. It seemed that all that was honest in him was making one final appeal to the evil passions which swayed him. His eyelids lowered suddenly, as though he could not even face the dim light of the gloomy interior. It was the attitude of one who fully realizes the nature of his actions, of one who shrinks from the light of honest purpose, and prefers the obscure recesses of his own moral darkness. Then, with an effort, he pulled himself together. He gripped his nerve. The next moment he flung wide the door. A flood of wintry sunshine suffused the interior of the dugout. The glare of the crystal-white earth was dazzling to a degree, and the hungry-looking trapper stood blinking in the light. His pistol was concealed behind him. The sleigh was before the door. Rainy Moon stood on the far side of the path in the act of hitching the dogs up. One of the animals, the largest of them all, was already harnessed. The others were standing or squatting around, held in leash by the Indian. When he heard the door open, Rainy Moon looked up from his work. He was standing with his back to the precipice which bordered the narrow ledge. His great, stolid face expressed nothing but solemn gravity. He grunted and turned again to his work. Like a flash, the trapper's pistol darted from behind him, and its report rang out, echoing and re-echoing, amongst the surrounding hills. There was an answering cry of pain from the harnessed dog, and Rainy Moon, with a yell, stood erect to find himself gazing into the muzzle of the revolver. The expression of the trapper's face was relentless now. His first shot had been fired under the influence of excitement, and he had missed his object and only wounded the dog. Now it was different. Again the pistol rang out. Rainy Moon gave one sharp cry of pain and sprang backwards into space. In one hand he still gripped the leashes of the dogs. The other clutched wildly at the air. For one instant his fall was broken by his hold upon the four dogs. Then the suddenness of his precipitation and his weight told, and the poor beasts were dragged over the side of the chasm after him. The whole dastardly act was but the work of a moment. The next all was silent save for the yelping of the wounded dog lying upon the snow. The trapper stood for a moment framed in the doorway. The horror of his crime was upon him. 
he waited for a sound to come up to him from below he longed to but he dared not look over the side of the yawning chasm he feared what awful sight his eyes might encounter his imagination conjured up pictures that turned him sick in the stomach and a great dread came over him suddenly he turned back into the hut and slammed the door the wounded dog had not changed its attitude the moments sped by suddenly the poor beast began to struggle violently it was a huge specimen of the husky breed exceptionally powerful and wolfish in its appearance the wretched brute moaned incessantly but its pain only made it struggle the harder to free itself from its harness at length it succeeded in wriggling out of the primitive breast-draw which held it then the suffering beast limped painfully away down the path fifty yards from the hut it squatted upon its haunches and began to lick its wounded foot and every now and then it would cease its healing operation to throw up its long muzzle and emit one of those drawn-out howls so dismal and dispiriting in which dogs are able to express their melancholy feelings at length the hut door opened again and the trapper came out he was equipped for a long journey thick blanket chaps covered his legs and a great fur coat reached to his knees his head was buried beneath a beaver cap which pressed low down over his ears was overlapped by the collar of his coat he carried a roll of blankets over his shoulder and a pack on his back as he came out into the sunshine he looked fearfully about him there stood the loaded sleigh quite undisturbed the harness alone was tumbled about by reason of the wounded dog's struggles and there was a pool of canine blood upon the snow and a faint trail of sanguinary hue leading from it the man eyed this and followed its direction until he saw the dog crouching down further along the path but he was not thinking of the dog he turned back to the sleigh and his eyes wandered across beyond it to the brink of the precipice the only marks that had disturbed the smooth white edge of the path were those which had tumbled the snow where the dogs had been dragged to their fate otherwise there was no sign the man stepped forward as though to look down to the depths below but as he neared the edge he halted shudderingly nor did his eyes turn downwards he looked around him above him but not down he gazed long and earnestly at the hard cold cloudless sky his brow frowned with unpleasant thought then his lips moved and he muttered words that sounded as though he were endeavouring to justify his acts to himself the gold was mine honestly mine it was wrested from me it may be christian to submit without retaliation it is not human what is a nesh's life nothing pooh an indian life is of no value in this country come on let's go he spoke as though he were not alone perhaps he was addressing that moral self of his which kept reminding him of his misdeeds anyhow he was uncomfortable and his words told of it he stooped and adjusted his snowshoes after which he gripped his long staff and slowly began his journey down the hill he quickly got into his stride that forward-leaning attitude of the snowshoer nor did he glance to the left or right straight ahead of him he stared over the jagged rampart of mountains to the clear steely hue of the sky above he was leaving the scene of his crime he wished also to leave its memory he gave no heed to the trail of blood that stained the whiteness of the snow beneath his feet his thoughts were not of the present his present his mind was travelling swiftly beyond 
the whining of the dog as he passed him fell upon ears that were deaf to all entreaty the crystal-covered earth glided by him the long reaching stride of the expert snowshoer bore him rapidly along he paused in the valley below and took fresh bearings he intended to strike through the heart of the mountains the pass was his goal for he knew that there lay the main trail he sought he cast about for the landmarks which he had located during his long tenancy of the dugout not a branch of a tree rustled not a breath of air fanned the steaming breath which poured from his lips his mind was centred on his object but the nervous realization of loneliness was upon him suddenly the awful stillness was broken the man bent his head in a listening attitude the sound came from behind and he turned sharply his movement was hurried and anxious his nerves were not steady a long drawn-out wail rose upon the air fifty yards behind stood the wounded hound gazing after him as if he too were endeavouring to ascertain the right direction the creature was standing upon three legs the fourth was hanging useless and the blood was dripping from the footless limb the man turned away with an impatient shrug and stepped out briskly he knew his direction now and resolutely centred his thoughts upon his journey past experience told him that this would tax all his energy and endurance and that he must keep a clear head for he was not a native of the country nor had he the instinct of one whose life had been passed in a mountainous world once he turned at the sound of a plaintive whining and to his annoyance he saw that the dog was following him a half-nervous laugh escaped him but he did not pause he had hitherto forgotten the creature and this was an unpleasant reminder an hour passed the exhilarating exercise had cleansed the atmosphere of the murderer's thoughts once only he looked back over his shoulder as some memory of the dog flashed across his brain he could see nothing but the immaculate gleam of snow something of the purity of his surroundings seemed to communicate itself to his thoughts he found himself looking forward to a life the honest respectable life which the burden he carried in his pack would purchase for him he saw himself the owner of vast tracts of pasture with stock grazing upon it a small but comfortable house and a wife he pictured to himself the joys of a pastoral life a community in which his opinions and influence would be matters of importance he would be looked up to and gradually as his wealth grew he would become interested in the world of politics and he would he was dragged back to the present by a memory of the scene at the dugout and quite suddenly he broke into a cold perspiration he increased his pace nor did those pleasant visions again return to him it was well past noon when at last he halted for food and rest he devoured his simple fare ravenously but he gained no enjoyment therefrom he was moody at that moment he hated life he hated himself for his weak yielding to the pricks of conscience he hated the snow and ice about him for their deadening effect upon the world through which he was passing he hated the dreadful solitude with which he was surrounded presently he drew out a pipe he looked at it for one instant then raised it to his nose he smelt it and with a motion of disgust and a bitter curse he threw it from him it reeked of the weed he had found at the dugout now he was seized with a feverish restlessness and was about to rise to his feet 
suddenly out on the still biting air wailed the familiar long-drawn note of misery to his disturbed fancy it came like a dreadful signal of some awful doom it echoed in undulating waves of sound dying away hardly as though it were loath to leave its mournful surroundings he turned in the direction whence it proceeded and slowly into view limped the wounded husky yelping piteously at every step at that moment the man was scarcely responsible for what he did he was beside himself with dread the solitude was on his nerves this haunting dog his own reflections all had combined to reduce him to the verge of nervous prostration with the last dying sound his heavy revolver was levelled in the direction of the oncoming hound there was a moment's pause then a shot rang out and the dog stood quite still the bullet fell short and only kicked up the snow some yards in front of the animal nor did the beast display the least sign of fear the man prepared to take another shot but as he was about to fire his arm dropped to his side and with a mirthless laugh he put the pistol away the damned cur seems to know the range of a gun he muttered with an uneasy look at the motionless creature the words were an apology to himself although perhaps he would not have admitted it the dog remained in its rigid attitude its head was slightly lowered and its wicked grey eyes glared ferociously its thick mane bristled and it looked like a gaunt hungry wolf following upon the trail of some unconscious traveller so long as the man stood so long did the dog remain still and silent but as the former returned to his seat and began to pack up the dog began to whine and furtively draw nearer although he did not look up the man knew that the animal was coming towards him when he had finished packing he straightened himself the dog was within a few paces of him he called gently and the animal responded with a whimper but remained where it was its canine mind was evidently dubious and the man was forced to take the initiative whatever may have been his intention in the first place he now exhibited a curious display of feeling for one who could plan and perpetrate so dastardly a crime as that which he had committed at the dugout human nature is a strange blending of good and evil passions two minutes ago the man would without the least remorse have shot the dog now as he reached him and as he listened to the beast's plaintive cries he stretched out his arm and stroked its trembling sides and then stooped to examine the wounded limb and stranger still he tore off a portion of the woollen scarf that circled his waist and proceeded to bandage up the shattered member the dog submitted to the operation with languid resignation the foot of one hind leg had been entirely torn away by a revolver shot and only the stump of the leg was left the poor beast would go on three legs for the rest of his life when the man had finished he rose to his feet and a bitter laugh shocked the silence of the snowbound world there you miserable cur it's better like that than to get the cold into it i've had some besides i didn't intend to damage you if you're going to travel with me you'd best come along and be damned to you and he walked back to where his pack and blankets lay and the dog limped at his heels end of chapter three